Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Airsdale. This week, we welcome David L. Eulen, and we are going to hit the books. David is one of our foremost experts on California literature. That is to say, literature from California, by Californians, about Californians. He's a former books editor for the Los Angeles Times, still writes reviews for the LA Times, is also the editor of Air Light Magazine, a digital literary journal. He's the current books editor for Alta Journal and has also written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and other illustrious publications. It's great to talk to David and talk a little bit about books, the literature of California. There is a long and distinguished history. We didn't even get into 99.9% of it. We mostly focused on Joan Didion. And uh, I'm not ashamed, you know, just as God made me. I just want to talk about Joan. Joan, Didion, and I are both Sacramentans. We both have very complicated relationships with this town. And while she moved away, uh, I returned and uh, there's a lot in common there that I can feel and deduce from reading her work, particularly uh, the essays in Slouching Toward Bethlehem and the White Album, also the memoir, Where I Was From, which deals a lot with Sacramento and her complicated, at best, relationship with this city and this region, this valley uh, that influenced and inspired so much of her work, even to the present day. And uh, David and I talk about Joan Didion quite a bit. This is, in fact, largely a conversation that was initiated by my uh, fascination with Joan Didion and David L. Ulan's uh, own familiarity with Joan. He is the editor of the Library of America volume, Joan Didion, the 1960s and 70s. And so that contains the books Run River, Played as It Lays, A Book of Common Prayer, as well as Slashing Toward Bethlehem, The Wide Album, among other work. One of the things we talk about in this conversation is whether or not Joan Didion is maybe too hard on California. I am of the mind that she is laying it on a little bit thick about kind of the apocalyptic post-pioneer vibes uh, in books like The White Album and Slouching, particularly in that last essay in The White Album where all hell breaks loose in Malibu. It kind of presages a lot of the catastrophes that have befallen that region in recent years. But David has a little more expansive, maybe generous view of things. I don't want to put words in his mouth. You can hear him and his uh, perspective on this in this episode. But I think it's fascinating because I think Joan Didion is perhaps the most important California author, if if not of the last 50 years, perhaps of the last century. I'd put her above virtually anybody else who has written about this state just because of the ways that her perspective has chronicled both the ascendancy of California after World War II and its decline. Now, I know what you might be thinking, Stu, what decline are you talking about? This is the fifth largest economy uh, in the world, and we export our culture, we export our technology, we export our agriculture, not just nationally, but internationally. What decline are you talking about? And that's where Didion gets interesting because, as I mentioned, I think she may go a little too hard on California, but I do think her perspective on California being past its prime, despite all outward appearances, is one of the most thought-provoking and influential views of California that has been articulated 
in the last half century. And so that's what I really wanted to talk to David L. Ulan about. Where is California? What can we learn about the state through Didion? And what are contemporary writers saying to kind of advance our understanding of California? Who are those contemporary writers? Who should we be paying attention to? David has read everything. He's read everybody. And he's going to fill you in on a few specific names, specific voices and visions that we might look to to better understand the answer to that all-encompassing, enduring question, what is California? I love that we got authors like Carolyn C., in this episode, but we also didn't get to some of the most famous California authors of all, folks like John Steinbeck or William Saroyan or Maxine Hong Kingston or James Elroy. So this is sadly not comprehensive, but you know, we have plenty more episodes to get to California literature. And so hopefully it's a good kind of start to that conversation. And I look forward to continuing it in the weeks and months and years ahead. I would love to hear from you. Any literary recommendations you have, any of your favorite California books, California writers, send them to me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Maybe we'll talk about them in a future episode. Maybe start a What is California book club. That could be really fun. Uh, and you can always DM me on Twitter at whatcalifornia. And of course, subscribe to our newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That's free. And it gets you the episodes in your inbox every Thursday and a nice roundup of cool weekend reads and other related links every Friday. I'm so glad you're here and I appreciate you listening. I hope you'll settle in for a great conversation now with David L. Ulan on what is California. Enjoy. David L. Ulan, welcome to What is California. It's so good to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about your work and what you're doing these days. But before we get into that, maybe we can talk about your California story. Uh, are you from here originally? And if not, like how and when did you get here? I'm not from here originally. I was born and raised in uh, in New York. Um, I came to California first uh, when I was just going to be great, just around when I turned six. My father had a fellowship. He's a, a physician and he had a fellowship at a rehabilitation hospital in Long Beach called Rancho Los Amigos. This was 1967, 68. So the whole family came out. I went to first grade at Lakewood Elementary School. We lived in North Long Beach for a year. At the end of that year, we moved back to the East Coast. But I always sort of felt like I had been bitten by the California bug and um, and wanted kept wanting to come back. Came back uh, in 1980 for about six months and lived in San Francisco in between high school and college and then uh, moved out for good, I guess, although at the time I did not anticipate it would be for good, uh, in 1991. And I've been in Southern California ever since. When you say you're bitten by the California bug, what does that mean exactly? I was fascinated by the state. I had, I think partly because I was, I mean, I was really young. I was, you know, I was, I think just before I, I moved here about two months before I turned six. So I had never really been anywhere else except New York or, you know, my grandparents had a house in Connecticut, nowhere outside of the, outside of the Northeast. So California in that way, I, even though I wasn't thinking in those terms was kind of an exotic landscape. You know, the, one of my first memories, I think maybe my first memory of California was of coming from LAX where we landed through um, the oil fields in Baldwin Hills up, you know, on La Cienega. And I had never seen, you know, oil, oil wells before. And I just, I just, you know, I was completely captivated by that sort of those giant prehistoric bird looking um, mechanisms. 
and, you know, other things that I wouldn't have seen. I remember vividly, you know, I read about this in Sidewalking. I remember vividly going to the La Brea Tar Pits um, as a six year old and seeing the, you know, the, the, the mammoth um, in the tar lake, which had, I, I didn't realize that then, but it had just been installed. Um, and thinking about not thinking consciously, but I think starting to think maybe in a cellular way about the way that time, the weirdness of time in general, and particularly the weirdness of time in, in California. I think it's the weirdness of time is much more on the, for me, at least is much more on the surface here than it is, has been in other places that I've, I've lived. It kind of confronts you. And I think that that's part of what I was responding to in some pre-verbal or pre-intellectual way as a kid. That's really interesting. So did that stick with you over the years as you kind of grew up trying to kind of get a handle on that idea, that understanding, that feeling and translate it into words? I think, I mean, you know, as I grew older, I, you know, as I became a teenager, certainly in the 1970s, I was infatuated with, I infatuated, it's an, underst an understatement, I would have to say, infatuated with the mythology of, of the counterculture and Haight-Ashbury in particular. And so there was definitely also for me in a, in, a, in, a, in a more conscious way when I was like 13, 14, 15, a sense of having lived in California in 67 and 68, even though I wasn't. Um, in San Francisco, and I certainly wasn't part of the counterculture, but that there was like that sense of proximity in a certain sense. And I think there's a little bit for me, at least a little bit of a, a, a romantic mythology, or there was at that age, a little bit of a romantic mythology there. I think that was one of the reasons that I was drawn to come back to California. And then, of course, as I said, when I came back for the first time, I ended up in San Francisco, in fact, living in Haight-Ashbury um, on, on Haight Street across from Buena Vista Park, um, which was a whole other kind of... Um, let's say, uh, an illusion um, changing experience. <laughs> How so? Yeah. I mean, confronting the reality, if you're, you know, if, if you were in, I mean, you can still see some residual effect of it now, although much less. But if you were in San Francisco, and particularly um, in the hate in 1980, there were an enormous amount of, there was an enormous amount of kind of, um, of, of residue, right? There were an enormous amount of people on the street, um, who had clearly been there since, you know, 1965, there were, you know, old hippies panhandling or selling bad acid. Um, you know, there, there were, um, there were street kids, squatters, deadheads and dreads, um, you know, and, and Rasta caps living in, in abandoned buildings on Masonic. And so there was this sense of kind of, um, not of the promise of the counterculture, but of let's call it the kind of fallout of the counterculture or the, uh, the residue of the counterculture, I think, uh, the human residue in, in, in some way, the human cost of it. And um, and that was a fascinating and eye-opening experience. It made me understand that um, romantic mythologies, they, they're powerful, but they are something that we invent on the kind of superstructure of reality. And reality is much more interesting. On, I mean, I don't want to just make it abstract. It's much more interesting and compelling, but also reality is the thing. So there was a way that it opened up my thinking um, or my understanding, I guess, or began to open up my understanding um, about what uh, what California was and what those mytho how those mythologies operated, what truth they held, but also what lies they told. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a little bit. But what part of California do you call home today? I live in Los Angeles, in Mid City, Los Angeles, um, uh, the plains, uh, the plains of Id, as Rainer Banham called them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what appealed to you about L.A. to move there and kind of settle there? It was a complicated process. You know, in the first place, I had done a lot of back and forthing across the country. I was fascinated with the country. I was fascinated with moving across it. Uh, you know, again, I had as part of that countercultural um, background, I, you know, the, the whole sort of road mythology of American Bohemia was deeply attractive to me. And so I was really interested in kind of my place in I guess my place as an American 
um, as well as a New Yorker. And I didn't want to be the kind of person who spent my entire life living in uh, Manhattan. So there was an abstract idea of like moving somewhere, you know, what's the farthest place away I can get um, California. At the same time, uh, my wife um, was an actor at the time and there was work was had pretty much dried up in New York and all of our friends in Los Angeles were getting work. So she wanted to move to Los Angeles. We were in our late 20s. I'm not the world's most socially adept person. We had a group of friends, a circle of friends in Southern California. So it felt like we could kind of plug right in and we wouldn't have to like have have to meet people, God forbid. Um, and so it seemed like a convenient move. I also had an ulterior motive, which was at the time I did want to ultimately end up in the Bay Area. And I felt like it would be easier to make the jump, you know, 360 miles from Los Angeles rather than, you know, 3000 miles from the East Coast. As it happened, we got here and, you know, I started getting work. We settled in. We became part of a community, both community of writers or I as a community of writers and also just a kind of community in general. We had kids and then um, and then we were here. And um, at first I was very resistant to Southern California. And then I slowly began to uh, be seduced by its many charms. <laughs> How? Well, I mean, I, you know, when I got here, I had a friend who said, you know, you're going to hate it for the first three years. And then the, then there's going to be a period of about two years where you're going to tolerate it. And then about year five, you're going to start to like it. And I, you know, I hate to say it, but she was exactly right. You know, so for the first three years, I was the classic you know, disgruntled, transplanted New Yorker complaining about like bad bagels and no subway and no street life. And, you know, it's it's like the endless suburbs. There's no there there. You know, all of the, those those typical things. There was a group that I heard about, but I uh, never went to a meeting of at the time that used to meet at Langer's Deli, I think. Call, they they call themselves Deny, which stood for disgruntled ex-New Yorkers. And I definitely sort of fit into that category. <laughs> I love that idea. But then, you know, but it is true. I mean, first of all, I was getting work in Los Angeles in ways that I hadn't when I was in, in New York as a young writer. Secondly, I love cities and I'm curious about them. And Los Angeles was a curious city. I had not not lived in a kind of sprawling southwestern um, city or Pacific Rim city. I had only lived. I mean, I had lived in San Francisco, which is probably the most eastern of the western cities. I had certainly I've been born and raised in um, in New York. I'd spent a lot of time in Boston. I'd gone to college in Philadelphia. Those are all cities built on a kind of 19th century Eurocentric model, right? You know, skyscrapers, big buildings, city center, and then uh, residential radiating out from the center and, and suburbs. Los Angeles was fascinating because it made no sense to me. And so I began to try and explore it and try and start writing about it. And I got really interested in the literary landscape of Los Angeles, which I had known very little about before I moved. I tried to do as much reading as I could. But much of that reading from the East Coast was the usual suspects, you know, Didion, um, Walter Mosley was just starting to publish the Easy Rollins books around then. I think I read the first book while I was still living in New York. Chandler, of course. And then because I had friends in the writing community in Los Angeles, I was exposed a little bit. And when I was visiting in the late 80s, was exposed to, you know, the Beyond Baroque scene, uh, poets like Wanda Coleman or Michelle Clinton. Uh, one of my friends in New York um, was David Trinidad, who was a Los Angeles poet, part of the Beyond Baroque seen in the 80s who had moved to New York and he and I knew each other well. So he introduced me to some some writers and 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 the scene in, in some way. And so, you know, I began to sort of see that there was this really fascinating culture that existed just below the kind of glittering surface of the city. And that whole notion of kind of authenticity and artifice and sort of hidden things has always been something that's fascinated me. And that was sort of my way into appreciating um, Los Angeles. When did you realize that there were all these different writers, some of whom you've already alluded to or referred to explicitly, telling 
different stories about California that kind of all coalesced into one story about this place and then wanting to put those stories and those tie those threads together. It was really a process that sort of, I would say, through the early and into the mid 1990s. So when I got to Los Angeles, um, I started, you know, I started looking for places to write. I was already writing when I moved here for a, uh, an alt weekly called the Los Angeles Reader, which was the smaller of the two. Uh, there was, you know, the, the weekly was the big one, the Village Voice style one. And the reader was smaller, you know, about a third the size, 52 to 56 pages a week. And I began to discover in more detail, the sort of the literary landscapes of Southern California through that experience, because I was I eventually my first editing job in California, I became the book editor of, of the reader in 1993 after uh, my friend left. And by that point, I was already thinking in terms of what made a California writer, I, I, you know, what made a Southern California writer, what, 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 who were the Southern California writers? I was looking at those books as they were coming out because I was assigning them as well as reviewing them. And then I had a connection at the LA Times. So I started doing book, uh, writer profiles for the LA Times. And partly because of the fact that those, they were local publications and that there was a, you know, that wasn't exclusively local work, but there was definitely a commitment to covering um, California writers and focusing on California literature. I began to get more deeply involved in, um, in that territory. And then around, I think the first big essay I wrote trying to kind of um, encapsulate or kind of look at, at this through a wider lens was a piece I wrote in 96 or 97 for the late lamented Hungry Mind Review um, about Southern California writing, where I began to develop this idea, which then fueled my first book, that Los Angeles was an uncentered city and that, in fact, its uncenteredness was its center. Um, the fact that it was chaotic and diffuse and didn't make sense was, in fact, the the logic that drove the city. I mean, I like paradox uh, always. And um, and the idea of a city with a paradox like that built into the center of it was really exciting. And then I was off to the races, both in terms of thinking about Los Angeles and also in terms of thinking about how to present or showcase or, or gather all of this material in a way that um, that told a kind of cohesive story, even if the landscape itself was not cohesive. So is that always the mission for you, either as an editor or as an anthologist, was to kind of find those voices, find the threads that actually did uh, kind of convey that story or that that vision, that idea of, of Los Angeles? I think, you know, I think there's a couple. Yes. From an editorial, from sort of like the broad editor as author point of view, because I do think, um, well, not always, but in anthologies, certainly, or literary journals or or maybe even in a newspaper book section, the editor does fulfill or hopefully fulfills a kind of authorial func function in the sense that the editor is sort of stringing together the various voices and pieces in a way that each issue or each anthology or whatever it is kind of makes sense. I, I mean, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that almost nobody reads an anthology or a literary journal cover to cover, but I always wanted there to be a kind of through line, even an intuitive through line for the one or two or three people who were going to read it cover to cover. And so I think there's that, that editorial overview the other mission, and I think this is has a lot to do with the fact that I have felt from the very beginning, uh, or from the beginning of my experience um, in 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 California, Southern California literature in particular, but California literature, is that these are great writers who are neglected by the national literary culture, um, and so part of the other mission was in. Ex 
creating a landscape to expose readers to these writers, to all of these writers in a variety of different uh, ways. So part of that was presenting writers who I already knew about, who I wanted, to, who I thought deserved wider attention. And part of it, frankly, was a, you know, was discovery and, and, um, and the thrill of discovering a writer I didn't know about um, and figuring out a way to present that writer. And that still is one of the fundamental um, drivers of a lot of my editorial work. You mentioned earlier Didion, Walter Mosley, Chandler as some of the writers who made an immediate and uh, intense impact on you. Who were some of the writers that as you kind of went on in your career, you really wanted to spotlight as not only being worthy of attention as individual authors telling individual stories, but also as authors who, again, were kind of contributing to a larger story about L.A., Southern California, maybe even California as a whole? Well, you know, I, the writer who immediately comes to mind is a writer named Caribbean Fragosa, who just published, um, I'm trying to remember when exactly, I think in March, published her first collection of short stories with City Lights. Um, and I mean, she's a remarkable writer who's kind of walking this fascinating territory between um, realism and magical realism and mythology. And, and I mean, the stories are beautiful and weird. I mean, weird is one of the highest compliments I can pay um, anything. So weird in exactly the right way and idiosyncratic and utterly original. So um, so she's one writer, I, I think of immediately um, as someone who has who I've who I've discovered. There's also a writer who is a kind of. Um, I don't know what I would call. I mean, I, I think they they are considered a kind of a steampunk writer. S. Kui Lu, whose first novel in the Watchful City is coming out end of this month, um, who is, uh, I think, one of the most interesting writers I've read lately. I've, I had never heard of this writer until um, I read an anthology earlier this year that was edited by Denise Hamilton called Speculative Los Angeles. And there was a story by Lou in, um, in the anthology that knocked me out. So in that sense, I mean, those are those are two basically, I guess, uh, I mean, they're not brand new writers. They've been working for a long time, but kind of new in terms of exposure, um, who I've become, you know, as a reader, I'm really excited about. And so it, to me, it's, you know, there are those writers. I think other writers, you know, going back, I think Chester Himes is a good example. If he hollers, let him go is a book that I think is a quintessential Los Angeles text. It's a book I'd never even heard of until I got to Southern California, although I had read some of uh, some of the Himes, you know, Cotton Comes to Harlem, some of the Himes detective, the Harlem detective novels uh, when I was a kid. But I had no idea that uh, I had no idea that that Holler, Hollers even existed. And so that book um, was profound to me. I think the other thing I would say in terms of overlaps is that I got really interested in the year 1939 as a kind of cultural moment in Los Angeles. Um, and I began to think about books like The Big Sleep, Chandler's first novel, Ask the Dust, John Fonte's novel, Ask the Dust, and, Nath and Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust, all of which came out in 1939 as a kind of a trilogy in a certain sense. This goes back to that intuitive narrative, I suppose. I think, you know, there are ways I'm always interested in how books almost inadvertently talk to each other. There's no evidence that any of these three people ever knew each other or were influenced by one another in any way. And yet the way that those books portray Los Angeles as a kind of city on the cusp of something, um, it's already very urban and recognizable in its way. Um, it's already got a lot of the kind of classic signifiers of, uh, you know, uh, Sunshine Noir is already, even though it's not, uh, hasn't been named is very much a part of both of all three of those books. Um, and then if you look at the broader, um, the broader culture 
infrastructure that's, you know, the, the, the Arroyo Parkway is in the process of being constructed. That opens in 1940, that the freeways change the whole dynamic of the city and how it operates. So I think of 1939 as a real kind of Annus Mirabilis for Los Angeles. And so I was looking for those relationships as well, not just the individual writers, but how the individual writers kind of spoke to one another, or, or, or at least I thought they spoke to one another. Is that a unique dynamic in California literature? I mean, obviously, there are New York authors, there are Texas authors, you know, like every state, every locale, every region has its own authors. But is that dynamic you just described, that kind of being able to kind of latch on to a specific moment and magnify it into something bigger and thus maybe even give birth to uh, a regional or statewide literature? Is that something unique to California? I don't know. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I also want to be clear, I think in a lot of ways, it's my own contrivance, right? It's my own imposition of order. I mean, coming back to that, that sense of order or my own imposition of a kind of narrative structure on what probably is just a serendipitous accident. I don't know about that. I mean, Los Angeles was never even really on the radar of most national culture until, I, I mean, I want to say the silent era of the film industry. I mean, into the 20s, 30s. Uh, before that, I mean, the, some of the biggest cities in California were places like Marysville and Stockton up yes. north, you yes. know, and literature was instrumental in bringing Los Angeles and the California culture to the, I think, to a broader audience. You know, we always think about movies, but I think of literature as just as important. I mean, you think of all the writers who came to California to write screenplays too. They brought literature um, I think they they amplified the culture, the literary culture in California. Do you think that's right? Oh, yeah, without question. I mean, I think, you know, I, I tend to have always since I got here have tended to even probably even before I got here have tended to kind of, you know, dismiss Hollywood or just, you know, sneer at Hollywood. I don't it's hard to dismiss Hollywood, but um, but to kind of look askance at Hollywood. Um, and I still do. And I think that, it you know, one of the problems with um, with the ongoing conversation, cultural or otherwise, about Los Angeles is that it still tends to revolve um, largely around Hollywood. And, and, you know, but there is absolutely no question that Hollywood, uh, the need, uh, the Hollywood's need for writers and the writers who came out here um, created, helped to create the literary culture of Los Angeles, or let's say the literary response to Los Angeles. The thing that's fascinating to me is that early on, this is what creates, the, for me, what creates the culture of exoticism. Right. You end up with a bunch of writers like me from New York who come out here and we're all, and are like, wow, palm trees. That's like you don't have that on Fifth Avenue. And all of a sudden it creates a kind of perspective of California in general and, and Southern California in specific as other. It's um, it's a region that doesn't make again, it, it, it's exotic. It's strange. It's not quite like where we came from. It's and then you get all of the like the lotus land tropes and all that kind of stuff. But I do think that that does create a territory in which both people were writing about Southern California, writing literature about Southern California and quite serious literature about Southern California. I mean, I think of Huxley. Um, in the 30, late 30s and 40s, uh, after many summer dies a swan, you know, like he, you know, that that there, those that book. I think in a certain way, even though I think he's not a very good writer, sentence by sentence, although I think he's an important figure. I think of someone like Upton Sinclair, um, you know, who was a novelist who, you know, almost, you know, won the Democratic nomination for governor in 1934. Um, and if you know, if if uh, if the Chandlers and the Hursts and 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 uh, Louis B. Mayer hadn't torpedoed him with a propaganda campaign, who knows? He might have won. So there's something and, and epic becomes 
his, you know, in poverty in California, his platform becomes a kind of driver that pushes the New Deal, you know, makes the New Deal more progressive because of the because of the influence of of his ideas in in Southern California or in California in general. So, I mean, I think there's always been a really interesting relationship of, uh, of between the writers in California and the culture, not just the literary culture, but the broader culture that they help create. But what gets really interesting to me is that at a certain point, the kind of exoticism or the let's call it the literature of exile engenders a development to literature of place because you start to have writers like Wanda Coleman, Bernard Cooper is a good example. I think um, Carolyn C um, who grew up in Southern California and are pushing back against the exoticism, right? They're writing about, there's a reason why a lot of that work is um, smaller and more personal, right? Why, why Cooper's work almost always revolves around his family, whether fic in fictional form or non-fictional form. Why Wanda always wrote about the streets of Los Angeles as almost like a living thing and moving through the city and her disappointment and anger with the city as much as her love of the city and, and race in the city in a really pointed and personal kind of way. Not through, I mean, uh, certainly through the wider filter, but starting with the personal. It was a way, I think, for writers to kind of get underneath the mythic superstructure Structure, um, which they understood to be a contrivance and to talk about what real life he was he, here is like. And of course, real life here is not all that different from real life anywhere else. Or, you know, it's a, basically like everybody's life. You're trying to figure out how to pay your bills, love your kids, make it through the day. Um, I don't know. Those are pretty much the three, the three things I spend most of my time thinking about. So <laughs> you mentioned Carolyn C and I feel like she is a writer who doesn't get nearly enough recognition in that kind of canon of mid-century to to late 20th century authors, um, you know, that memoir Dreaming she wrote is just one of the best California books ever. Um, you know, are there any other unsung writers from that era that really kind of speak to the phenomenon you're describing? I think, you know, I, there are a few I can make. I mean, I do also, as long as we're talking about Carolyn, who was a great, um, a great mentor of mine and, and, um, and one of the, and a huge influence, I mean, taught me how to be a writer in Southern California in a lot of Ways. I mean, I think Golden Days is one of, I mean, I agree with you about dreaming, but I also think Golden Days is one of the great, great California novels. I mean, a brilliant novel. And who else, maybe Kurt Vonnegut, would create a novel where, like, it, the end of the world is a happy ending, right? The nuclear apocalypse comes and it's great. You know, we survived on into golden into, into golden days. That's the end of the book. It's, you know, only only Carolyn C. could have come up with that book and only Carolyn C. could have pulled that off. Um, I'm reading. I'm just starting. So I don't have I can't say anything about it. But I just started um, Alison Lurie's novel from 1965 called The Nowhere City, which is a novel that takes place in Los Angeles. I don't think Lurie's an underrecognized writer, but this book, I think, is is highly underrecognized in some way. I think, as I was saying, I think Himes certainly um, in terms of if he hollers, um, I, I mean, even going all over the place, I think, you know, Horace McCoy, I should have stayed home is one of the great Hollywood novels that nobody and nobody's ever read it. Um, I mean, the title alone, you should, it's worth it. It's worth the price of admission just for the title alone. And I'm also a great devotee of this 1933 novel. Again, this predates um, Carolyn uh, by a writer named Myron Brinnig, who is largely forgotten now, but was a fairly well-known writer in his day. Um, called The Flutter of an Eyelid, which is a kind of modernist fantasia about uh, a group of um, people, in, artists and effetes in uh, Santa Monica who call themselves the hedonists and their sort of life on the coast. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating, too, about these books, Huxley, another example, um, again, I don't think he's a forgotten writer, but I don't think that he's quite appreciated as a Californian writer to the extent that um, he ought to be. 
Um, so I think those are some of the writers. Gavin Lambert, The Slide Area is another, I think, a, a fantastic, fantastic Hollywood book, actually, um, that people kind of don't. If, they, if you think about Lambert, you think about Inside Daisy Clover. You don't think about The Slide Area. So those are some of the writers who I think are, um, are worth our, our looking at and, and bringing back. All right. So now we got to talk about Joan Didion. I think for the general audience, there is Joan Didion. That's kind of the quintessential or archetypal California writer. Mm -hmm. That is who they kind of perceive. Like there's like there's before Didion and then there's after Didion. There's California as visualized or understood before Didion and then California as visualized and understood after Didion. What drew you to Joan Didion as an author, especially in the context of wanting to just dive in as much as you could into you know her work and her legacy? Um, well, the, the short answer is the voice. But before we go there, you know, Didion for me, this comes back to Haight-Ashbury. So when I was living um, on Haight Street as an 18 year old and my mother in New York was deeply concerned I was never coming back, um, she called me and said, I have a book for you to read. Um, you should go get Slouching Towards Bethlehem by Joan Didion. Um, I think you'll like it and especially the title essay because it's about hate ashbury she didn't say what it was about and i was you know that was all i needed so i went and bought the book and plunged in um again if we just talk about just the the essay slouching towards bethlehem for a second it kind of echoed what i was seeing when i was talking about the kind of the fallout of the counterculture um, from the point of view of 1967 it kind of echoed what i was seeing and the sort of disillusionment i was starting to have about that romantic countercultural myth um, and it made me realize that there was a through line there, right? That this was, you know, what she was seeing in 67 and what I was seeing in 1980 were kind of um, two points on a spectrum. Um, so there was that. But more to the point, it was the voice. I mean, I just had never read any. There's something about that balance of distance and proximity, the way that she always is using that kind of, you know, passive voice and those um, those 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 tenses, the sort of past perfect tenses and things, or even the way she uses pronouns, like in that essay, um, Los Angeles Notebook, which begins with the whole riff on the Santa Ana um, and fire. She talks about um, the Watts riots and she says something I can't remember. I, I could I can't quote it exactly, but she says something like, you know, um, for days, one would drive the harbor freeway and see the city burn just as we had always known it would be in the end. She never uses the word I. She uses one and then she uses we. And there's something, I mean, this is, I was already thinking as a writer also at that point. So there's something really interesting about the way that she generalizes the particular in some sense and, and sort of, she's only talking about herself. We didn't know that the city would burn, be burned, would burn to the ground in the end. That's her assumption. But there's something, there's, it's a really interesting move to ascribe it to all of us. And so it made it, so technically I was, I was fascinated, but there was also, I was drawn, I still am to, um, I am, I, I, I am drawn to despair and alienation, um, and angst, existential, um, angst. And I really recognized, um, in her sense of, let's say prickly dread, a kind of kindred spirit in that, in that regard. Later, there are other things that, as I became a professional writer, other things, um, you know, the idea that writers are always selling someone out, which I firmly believe and subscribe to. Um, the idea that your her presence or someone, my presence in your living room is counter to your best interests, or even my presence in my own living room is counter to my best interests if I'm doing my job right. Um, I think those are articles of faith for me. So that that's later. But really, initially, it was voice. The other thing quickly that I would say is I had been uh, at that point, I had not thought about nonfiction as liter as a literary 
enterprise. Um, I was a fiction writer, um, but there was something both about, so she opened up the essay to me as a literary territory, but also the idea that she was writing about her time and writing about herself within her time. I hadn't read a lot of Mailer at that point or, or you know, or, or, or Michael Hare. I, I was kind of interested in, in that idea. But the idea that a story could be bigger than just what happened to a character, but that it could have a social or a political component. It could be about current events. It could be open-ended because the material you were writing about wasn't settled. It wasn't finished. That was deeply, deeply exciting to me and changed the way I thought about my own writing forever. So you edited the Library of America's Joan Didion collection from 2019, Joan Didion, the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. It includes three novels, uh, Run River, Play As It Lays, Book of Common Prayer. It has the essay collections, uh, Slouching Toward Bethlehem, and the White Album. What was it about Didion and those works, that era, that compelled you to examine them together and then issue them together? I do think of them and that era as together. But the project, because it's a three volume project, was the the Library of America wanted to break it up chronologically. And her career broke really nicely into three 20 year cycles. You could do the the 60s and 70s. You do the 80s and 90s, which came out um, in the spring of 2021. And then the third book will be the the I guess the aughts and, and, and teens. Um, and that, and there are, you know, so if you look at, if you just look at the big shape of the career, those books kind of, the first five books kind of hang together. I mean, they're almost, you could almost call them the California books. Um, uh, Book of Common Prayer is a little bit of an outlier in that regard, but it does presage what happens in the eighties and nineties, which are really the kind of international books, the the global politics, the American influence books, the aughts and and teens are really the the memoirs in, in a lot of ways, right? I mean, there's, again, there's political fictions, which is a little bit of an outlier in that territory, but it's really where I was from and uh, your, your ma- uh, magical thinking and um, and Blue Nights. So they, they seem to break nicely. But as far as those five books go, I think there's something really interesting that happens. She begins with Run River, which is really an investigation of both the mythologies of sort of Northern California, of old line California, like first family California. I mean, you know, first Anglo family, Oregon Trail. Pioneers. Pioneers, right? So you've got, you know, so that that kind of sets it and it that's the foundation. That's the California she's launching from. That California is already changing by the time that book is, when that book takes place. Most of that book takes place in 1959. And if you remember, the, the antagonist of the book is for, not only for these reasons, but is a real estate developer who's buying up river plantations and turning them into, you know, into, into subdivisions. And so that's already happening. And then we move into, into slouches which is the new California. And I think those tensions, right? If you, because one of the things she's talking about in slouching is the, the loss of a common narrative. So, um, which I firmly agree with in, in, in a lot of ways, but um, so she's presenting the last vestiges of the common narrative in Run River. In slouching, she's beginning to explore the fragmentation and fragmentation becomes her aesthetic and her metier, right? So if you read um, Play It As It Lays, the whole, I mean, it's a book of fragmentation. There are chapters that are like one sentence long in that book. You know, I think it's a, it's a 200 page book with 110 chapters in it. So, you know, so there's, so there's that. And then that fragmentation continues into the White Album. Um, And I think, you know, again, as I say, We've got um, Book of Common Prayer as a bit of an outlier, but it does grow out. She's already, you know, in, in the White Album, she's got the essay in Bogota, which was written in the mid 70s, which sort of gave her the first inkling of interest into um, 
American influence south of the border. And so that that kind of influences Book of Common Prayer. So I think what we see is where she came from, where she's situated in the 60s and 70s, and with Book of Common Prayer, where she's going. So there's something really interesting and dynamic about that period in her work, perhaps more so than any other period in her career, I think. I love Didion, but she does kind of torment me as a California because her voice, like you said, her style, her lucidity, there's nothing else like it. But the older I get, the more I kind of resent the way she weaponizes that disillusion and kind of fetishizes it almost. And it could be Sacramento in Run River of the Sacramento Valley. It could, or where I was from for that matter. Um, she talks about it there too. Yep. Uh, San Francisco in Slouching. Malibu in the White Album. And that last essay in the White Album, the way she sends us off into the 80s is by talking about her family fleeing the dream house. Yeah. Right. On the Pacific Coast Highway and the house and the whole community, the whole shoreline are a magnet for apocalypse. And she really lays it on thick, like biblically, like with floods and wildfires and car accidents. Horses are on fire. Birds are exploding. I'm like, are you serious right now, Joan? Yeah. Like, is it really that bad? So I guess my question to you as someone who's really read into this stuff, is she too hard on California, do you think? Or <laughs> am I just too hard on her as a reader and someone who's like, you know, come on and give us a little credit here? Well, I think she's a corrective in the sense that, I mean, again, and part of what drew me to her initially was that both the disillusion because of, again, her inner weather and my inner weather are not that are, are not dissimilar. Um, so there was that, that sense of recognition, but also the idea of her as a corrective of all that kind of sunshiny, you know, like, you know, California, again, the Lotus land myth, like she is actively destroying or trying to destroy that mythology. And I think that as someone who resists that, that mythology, because I think it reduces the state to the level of a cliche, it reduces the culture and the, and the place to, uh, to the level of, of, of a cliche. I am, I, you know, I responded quite, I liked that idea, you know, but I also want to say that, yeah, two things. One is yes, absolutely. It's, you know, it's her own, if you, read again in 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 the los angeles notebook the stuff about the santa annas you know the stuff about you know and on the third day a prominent physician in pasadena killed his family because of financial stuff and himself i'm like yeah maybe that had to do with the santa Ana, or maybe it just had to do with the fact that he was you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and in despair and couldn't get out of it. You know, all of the things that happen as a result of the Santa Ana, the car accidents, the doctors not being able to do surgery because your blood doesn't clot properly. I'm like, you know, I have the same reaction. Um, it's, it's hyperbole, but it's hyperbole for a kind of effect. And I come to think that, you know, although I first responded to it, as I say, because it was presenting, um, it was a corrective to the sort of the sunshine aspects of California, which I, I, I've always resisted. Someone once told me that when the revolution came, I would be executed for not having taken advantage of living so close to the beach for all these years. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, but there's that. So, you know, I, I've come to think of it much more as her inner weather. It's really, and I do think of it as inner weather. I think that that sense, if you think about the opening of uh, some dreamers of the golden dream, right? The, the description of, you know, this is the California where it's easy to, it's easy to dial a prayer, but hard to buy a book. This is the California where, you know, we named our kids with like, you know, with the, end, the names end with an I, and then we got divorced and went to hairdressing school and, you know, talked about how we were crazy kids. You know, she's trafficking in, in cliche in that way as a way of undermining another set of cliches. And she's using individuals to be representative. So in that essay, for instance, she's using Gordon and Lucille Miller, which appears to me to be a very specific sort of toxic relationship um, as kind of representative of a whole class of, uh, of people. The place where I've had more difficulty with her uh, as I've gotten older is in terms of, of her um, 
uh, terms of the lens of class in her work. Um, it, it, you know, and I think that that's where more than anything, I think, I mean, I think she's very upfront about it and I think she understands it in some sense as a kind of limitation or a lens, uh, through which she's looking at things. But, you know, but again, if you read, uh, some dreamers, of the golden dream through that lens of class, it becomes much more of, um, it becomes much more about Didion's judgment, I suppose, than um, than the Millers actually being representative of a kind of um, a movement in the state. Yeah, I don't know if it's the most charitable reading or even if it's the most rational reading, but I've always felt like weirdly like, oh, the reason that your magical thinking is is so powerful is because she spent all those years grieving California. She's got such practice, yeah. you know, at writing about grief and writing about loss through the prism of California's despair and kind of irrevocable diminution as as a culture and as a as a landscape and now she's looking at that in kind of the physical sense as you know that her husband dying later on with blue nights i don't know what what is that is that even is is that too on the nose do you think no i mean you know i think that that's probably right i think you know i i mean it is her her sense you know her it you know she's imbued with the idea of loss or dread, I think, you know, throughout. Think about, you know, at the beginning of the essay, The White Album, or maybe in the middle of the essay, The White Album, she talks about that little homily on her mother-in-law's wall in West Hartford that she was sure would be the detail the newspapers would pick up after the morning after the murders. Um, you know, I mean, there is something about that point of view that gets um, that gets transposed. It may well be that um, that 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 she was prepared for year of magical thinking. I mean, I think the best parts of that book are so good because of their immediacy, because I think she's writing from the white hot center of immediate grief. The beginning sections about Dunn and his death and the immediate aftermath of his death are riveting because she's, she's in it. And I think there's some quality of presence to that, those pages that um, is different in some sense because it's personal as opposed to kind of collective. I want to talk to you about geography because your books, Sidewalking and Labyrinth and others, kind of pinpoint the importance of geography in California and its importance and relevance to you. Can you talk a little bit about California's geography and how it's had an impact on you and your work? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I've am i always been fascinated both as a human and as a writer in place and in the effects of place. That partly has to do with my family. My grandfather, uh, with whom I was very close, was you know emigrated from Russia when he was eight or nine years old. And for him, New York was a magical place. And he and I used to walk around Brooklyn and we talked a lot about, um, you know, a place he would tell me stories. And so I think that that has um, a lot to do with sort of my sense of the way place informs or even forms identity. Um, as I said earlier, when I came out to California, one of the most important things for me in terms of trying to accommodate was trying to figure out where I was and what my place was within uh, within within the landscape and certainly within the city of Los Angeles. Um, and the same had been true when I was living in San Francisco, which is, um, I guess, the subtext to Labyrinth, which is, I mean, both it's interesting. I mean, they're both books about one's a book about walking around Los Angeles and one's a book about walking around San Francisco, um, because I think place there's a couple of things right in Labyrinth, particularly place is a landscape of memory. And, um, you know, it's, it's a book about um, uh, someone who had lived in San Francisco at one point, is back on business, has some time to kill, is going to meet an old friend for a drink. So he's already in a kind of, uh, I don't want to quite say nostalgic, but a retrospective mode. Um, the drink goes badly. And then he has to deal with the, with the fallout of that. But, you know, for him, 
the, the, and this is true. I mean, when I am in San Francisco to this day, that's what I do. I walk miles. I walk endlessly. Last time I was there, I spent an entire Saturday just, you know, I probably walk about 12 miles all the way, all over the, the, because there's something about being physically in the landscape that makes me feel connected to it. And there's something about that connection to the landscape that makes me feel connected to my own history within that landscape and my own past. Often, even here, when I'm, I walk for exercise in the morning. So when I'm walking, I, one of the loops I take is um, I can, because I've always lived in the same general area in Los Angeles, I can loop past every house I've ever lived in, in Los Angeles. Um, and also past Raymond Chandler's house on, as an added bonus um, on, uh, on Drexel. So, um, you know, so there, I mean, I've only lived in three places because I tend to stay in a place for a long time. So, that, you know, but there's something too about that as like a connective, like I can almost walk my whole life into being. But I also think that because the notion of place in California or the notion of place among the in terms of how we think about California is so tricky. And often we think about it as a temporary landscape and it's a way station or, you know, that there's something really, it was really important for me to write about as well as experience the grounding and connection um, that thinking about place provides. And walking is a, for me because it's slow and it, 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 I have to be conscious of where I am um, all the time. Really, like the, the kind of the attention that it requires is something that uh, makes that makes it an, an essential element of that process. Do you like walking by the places where you used to live? Do you kind of appreciate that feeling it gives you or that sense that you have when you pass them? I love it. I love it. Why? They're like monuments. I feel like they're landmarks of they're physical landmarks of things that otherwise I don't want to say they would be lost because they would exist in memory. But I like the idea of something physical, some marker, even if it's a marker only I recognize. I think that's one of the reasons I write books, too. I don't expect I don't believe in um, in posterity at all. But um, but I do think that, you know, it's, it, there is a kind of way of putting a marker of here's what I was thinking about. Here's what I was doing. It, it, it codifies it for me or preserves it in some way. And I'm very aware um, of fle the fleeting nature of every of the moment. Do you ever think about the people who live there now and how maybe their experience overrides or you know sh shadows your own experience? I, I definitely do because I think about it in terms of my own. You know, I've lived only in, well, certainly in, in Southern California. I've only I've lived only in old buildings. Buildings built in the one I live in now was built in thirty three. Um, the other two I lived in were built in the twenties. So I have always, you know, I always think about who lived here, who died here, you know, what happened here? What was, what was going on in, I mean, a room I'm sitting and talking to you in right now, what was going on in this room on August 5th, 1938 or something, you know? Right. So I, you know, I feel, I don't want to say that I feel those ghosts exactly because I don't know who they are, but I do feel the presence of, um, of that history. And I, and I feel my place as a, I feel, I guess my, my, presence as a part of it. What would you say is the biggest challenge that California faces as a state and how can it be surmounted? <laughs> that is a really, really excellent and difficult question. For me, um, I think that one the, you know, the, the, the clear challenges, which I think are, are obvious, are um, housing, income, inequality, immigration, I think that the, you know, well, a couple things. I, I'm interested in how California continues to position itself as a national player, as a national influence in an era where the where we're not actively opposed to the federal government, where we're not, you know, the state of resistance, to use Manuel Pastor's um, term. Um, 
where you know and and how California can lead on a, on, a, on a number of things. I think that um, you know my my focus tends to be more local. So I think in terms of Los Angeles, I think and well statewide certainly, but I think you know the homelessness crisis, which is out of control with no solutions and no leadership. And I don't have any solutions either. So I'm just saying like that, that's a huge factor. I think that that is absolutely connected to housing, affordable, affordable housing um, and a lack of affordable housing and loopholes for developers and, and all, you know, all of that gent- you know, gentrification run amok. I'm not um, I don't I'm not an anti-development person per se, because I do think cities have to grow and develop and, and evolve in some kind of way. But I'm uh, I'm certainly an anti um rapacious capitalism person. So, you know, so I I think that there has to be some kind of sense of social vision and community. And I think that that's really the the key, the core question. I think that one of the things pre-pandemic that I had great hope for in, in, in Los Angeles specifically, and which I'm hoping we come back to, is that the city was becoming more uh, neighborhood. I mean, it is a city of neighborhoods. I, I, I absolutely is a city of neighborhoods, but it was becoming more consciously neighborhood based, more consciously community based, more aware of itself as kind of as small as well as large um, as a as a human scale space. And I think that that is what would be I, you know, what I'm hoping post pandemic is that we keep some of the kinds of changes that we put in, you know, slow streets, more walking corridors, uh, more pedestrian um, stuff, you know, street side dining, as an example, um, rethinking our relationship to our our indigenous history, rethinking all of those things, more pedestrianism, really making the city or trying to keep the city small and human scale. I think that I don't think that's a solution per se, but I think that if we start thinking in those terms, then we start thinking about the city in terms of the relationships of people rather than simply as a landscape. What do people outside California most misunderstand about this place? I think what people get wrong about the state generally is that they may not be aware of how many narratives there are and how many Californias there are, what kinds of overlapping diasporas. Diaspora is a word I've been using a lot lately in terms of thinking about the state and its and its communities. And I think that, you know, there still is this sense of, oh, California, like I can sum this up, you know, whatever it is. All of the cliches, which I don't want to repeat, um, end up you know, coming to the fore, even among people who think that they are more conscious, let's say, than 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 that. Um, I think those cliches are really hard to decode. I think that the idea of California as just another landscape, not exceptional at all. Um, I mean, I you know, I understand the impulse and the intention and the need at some point for California exceptionalism as an idea, but I wish that we did not. I w- I'd like to retire the notion of exceptionalism. Um, because I think it doesn't allow, I don't want to say it doesn't allow us, but it gets in the way of us looking at the state um, as a real place on it, on its own terms. What does California exceptionalism actually mean? Well, it's a, it's, it, it means that, you know, we're, we're like America only more so, right? You know, we are the, we are the golden land. We're west of the, all the west of the west, um, all of those kinds of, of issues. Um, you know, we're, we're the, we're, it's different here. We're, we're, here's where we came to make it better. Um, I think there's also, I'm sure there's Bay Area exceptionalism, certainly Los Angeles exceptionalism, you know, or there was, you know, this was the city that worked until it was, you know, worked for certain people uh, in certain corners of the city that were not walled off by freeways. Um, But, you know, that blew up, rightly so. But there was when I first got here in 1991, there was a lot of talk about, you know, the city works, the streets are paved and the sewers work. And there's, you know, and, and, um, you know, you can have space, it's affordable, you know, right. That was very quickly. um, I mean, 
I don't want to say it was disproved because it was the view of a certain sector of the city, right? Other other communities understood that that was that itself was a myth. But I think that that sense of California as somehow different or exotic, I think going back to that cult, that myth of exoticism that grew out, I think that grew out of the Easterners coming um, to do little duty, little tours of duty in Hollywood and then writing about it as if it was an alien landscape. I do think that people outside do still tend to think of it in those terms. And I think that the if I could pull one idea out um, of the conversation, it would be that sort of um, that exoticism or exceptionalism. Finally, we end with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? An excellent question. Um, my heart wants me to say Jerry Garcia, but my um, but I think the person who most fascinates me is a guy named William Money, who was a crazy prophet in the late 1800s. It had built himself a, a circular castle in Malibu and hated San Francisco. And so he predicted endlessly the destruction of San Francisco by fire and flood and, and, and earthquake. I've always been attracted to the California cranks. Um, I, you know, I, I, I just think you know emperor norton i think you know the the um the kind of that aspect of california culture uh, just never i'm and i know there are other states with those kinds of figures but that aspect of california culture never grows old love that answer david l yulin thank you so much for being with us my pleasure Stu. thanks so much for having me There you have it. That is the show. Thank you to David L. Yulin for stopping by. I love that conversation. I love to talk books. And now I have a reading list that I will probably never be able to get through. But hey, you know, there are worse problems to have. All of the books and all the reading mentioned in this episode are linked in the show notes, both on the podcast and at our website, whatiscalifornia.com. Check them out at your local library or pick them up at find bookstores everywhere in person online and let me know what you thought i'd love to hear your feedback and recommended reading what is california is produced edited and hosted by me Stu van airsdale theme music is by sound supreme you can find us on twitter at what california and our substack newsletter uh, is free you can subscribe and it arrives every thursday new episodes and then on friday our weekend reads weekend links Uh, good things to know about the state. That is at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Again, that newsletter is free to subscribe. You can support What Is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. And you can chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running, keep our headquarters cat fed. And that link is also in the show notes and online. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. And of course, I would greatly appreciate it if you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What Is California, please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That is a wrap for episode six. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. And remember, until then, keep your eye on the bear. 